Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Liver disease has a profound effect on nutritional status as the liver plays a pivotal role in macronutrient metabolism and micronutrient activation and storage. It is estimated that over 65% of cirrhotic patients experience malnutrition, making early recognition of micronutrient deficiencies such as vitamin A, D, and zinc critical to improve patient outcomes. Today, Dr. Daniel Hess, a Mayo Clinic pharmacist, delivers expert advice on how to supplement and monitor micronutrients in the cirrhotic population. Liver disease has a profound effect on nutritional status, as the liver plays a pivotal role in macronutrient metabolism and micronutrient activation and storage. And it is estimated that over 65% of our cirrhotic patients experience malnutrition. Early recognition of micronutrient deficiencies is essential as early and appropriate supplementation has been shown to support liver regeneration, survival, and attenuation of liver complications and liver transplantation. Although nutrition is often overlooked in comparison to drug therapy, it is essential to assess the micronutrient status of all cirrhotic patients and to advocate for appropriate supplementation. Across the Mayo Enterprise, we have admitted over 1,600 patients with a diagnosis of cirrhosis in just the last six months, and this includes over 600 patients here at Mayo Rochester. As for my objectives today, I will describe the role of nutrition in cirrhosis and the deficiency patterns seen with liver severity. Next, I will discuss and evaluate the literature depicting several different micronutrients, including vitamin A, D, and zinc, and complications associated with cirrhosis and these deficiencies. And finally, we will discuss micronutrient supplementation, and I will provide general recommendations for monitoring. I would like to start off today with a poll to see the audience perception as to why nutrition is important in the management of liver cirrhosis. Great, so I'm seeing some of the themes including mortality, protein and vitamin deficiency, disease progression, hospital admission, all of these are great and they are, um, today we will focus on the complications associated with liver cirrhosis and I hope to show you why nutrition is so important in our cirrhotic patients. Liver cirrhosis is the consequence of chronic liver disease and the mainstay of treatment focuses on prevention of disease progression. Prevention and management of malnutrition in our cirrhotic patients are essential in order to improve clinical outcomes in this patient population. Therefore, we will discuss the pathogenesis of how patients develop malnutrition in cirrhosis, including things such as the hepatocellular damage that results in metabolic derangements. We will also discuss the nutrition deficiencies present in cirrhotic patients, including macronutrients and micronutrients. And finally, I will discuss how the degree of malnutrition actually increases with liver severity. 
So as we know that over 65% of our cirrhotic patients experience malnutrition, it's first important to understand how this malnutrition even takes place. We know that the liver is primarily a metabolic organ that orchestrates a complex array of physiological and biochemical processes, including macronutrient metabolism, vitamin activation and storage, detoxification, and excretion of waste products. However, how do we move to this malnutrition picture? Well, we know and you can see in the image above that there is an accumulation of hepatocyte damage in cirrhotic patients. And this damage accumulation leads to a number of metabolic derangements. This increases one's risk for a protein calorie malnutrition and micronutrient alterations. For example, patients with cirrhosis often experience decreased oral intake. This may be due to anorexia, dyskusia associated with zinc and magnesium deficiency, or a substitution of calories with alcohol. Additionally, with a decrease in our hepatocyte mass in cirrhosis, there is an alteration in metabolism as well. And this actually causes a shift from glyconeogenesis to gluconeogenesis as a source of energy. And gluconeogenesis leads to lipopenia and sarcopenia. Additionally, fat malabsorption can occur in our cirrhotic patients due to diminished luminal bile acid uh, present, and this can be due to a decrease in synthesis or portosystemic shunting. And finally, in our decompensated cirrhotic patients and those with ascites, it is common to experience early satiety, and this is because of a extrinsic compression on the GI tract from this buildup in peritoneal fluid. Overall, though, it is important to mention that the pathogenesis of malnutrition is multifactorial, and patients may experience one, some, or all of these different factors, but it depends on the underlying cause of their cirrhosis and the progression of their disease. So as we saw that there is a multifactorial process, this involves a number of nutrition deficiencies that are observed in our cirrhotic patients. This includes both deficiencies in macronutrients and micronutrients. First, in macronutrients, protein calorie malnutrition occurs in about 50 to 90% of cirrhotic patients. And previously, we actually restricted the amount of protein in cirrhotic diets, knowing that the protein byproduct, when it is broken down, can form ammonia, and patients with a liver dysfunction can have trouble breaking down that ammonia to urea to be excreted by the kidneys, which could lead to hepatic encephalopathy. However, it is now known that protein is absolutely critical in the diets of our cirrhotic patients because we want to avoid protein calorie malnutrition. Protein calorie malnutrition itself also has a multifactorial pathogenesis to it, However, it involves a decrease in protein intake. It also involves um, fatty acid malabsorption and a number of metabolic alterations. Overall, we want to avoid protein calorie malnutrition because it is associated with morbidity and mortality in our cirrhotic patients. Additionally, as I mentioned, there are a significant prevalence of micronutrient deficiencies as well, including fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies and trace element deficiencies. And because of the significant prevalence of micronutrient deficiencies, 
in cirrhotic patients, micronutrients will be the focus of the rest of my presentation. The documented micronutrient deficiencies in cirrhosis are noted here in the table. And as you can see, there are several different signs and symptoms that exist for deficiencies in each of these micronutrients. However, today we will focus on three of the key micronutrients that are most prevalent in cirrhotic patients. First, this involves vitamin A or retinol. And because of vitamin A's significant role in vision, with a deficiency, we can see abnormal dark adaptation or rough skin. For vitamin D, we can see altered bone metabolism or an altered gut barrier or immune function. And finally, with our third micronutrient focus of today, zinc, we can see anorexia with altered taste or smell, altered wound healing, or altered immune function when there is a deficiency. And now we know that all of these metabolic changes are occurring. However, how does the severity of liver disease affect the degree of malnutrition in our cirrhotic patients? We can classify liver cirrhosis by the child pew classification and MELD score. Therefore, I would like to take a few brief moments to review these two scoring systems before we go into the studies. First, with child pew classification, you can see that there are a number of factors that are input into this score. We have serum bilirubin, serum albumin, prothrombin time, and the presence of ascites or hepatic encephalopathy. And each of these factors are numbered with a point of one, two points, or three points, depending on the score, the value, or the presence of ascites or hepatic encephalopathy. We then total this score, and this is what classifies a patient as class A, B, or most severe class C. Additionally, I mentioned the MELD score, and this is modeled for end-stage liver disease score. This is a validated predictor of three-month survival in cirrhotic patients. And here, as you can see, there are also a number of factors that go into this score, including whether or not the patient had dial dialysis at least two times in the past week, serum creatinine, bilirubin, INR, and serum sodium. The scores here range from about 6 to 40, and as you increase with the score, the pr um, probability of mortality also increases. Now that we have a brief, brief overview of the scoring systems of how we classify liver severity, we will look at the studies that look at how malnutrition is related to disease severity. Abbott Johnson and colleagues conducted a cross-sectional study of patients awaiting liver transplantation. This involved 107 different patients, and as you can see, there was a variety of etologies for their chronic liver disease. In particular, the largest group was hepatocellular disease, and this involved 14 patients in particular with a diagnosis of cirrhosis. As you can tell, there was also a cholestatic, metabolic, and miscellaneous group as well. Um, and although cirrhosis is a little bit smaller in this group, we will look at hepatocellular disease as a whole for the purpose of this study in particular. The endpoints for this study involved determining fat-soluble vitamin levels and assessing the association of liver disease severity and vitamin levels. Within this study, for vitamin A or retinol in particular, it was found that 90% of the patients were defined as having at least a marginal vitamin A deficiency. At these levels, patients can 
I experienced dark adaptation and conjunctival changes. In particular, 59% of these patients experienced a severe vitamin A deficiency, and at this level, there can be a progression in eye diseases because of the vitamin A deficiency. If we look at the graphs on the right of the screen, we can see that vitamin A was stratified against child Pew score and MELD score separately. And for both of these scores, there was a negative correlation with vitamin A levels. So as the child Pew score increased or MELD score increased, the vitamin A levels decreased. Additionally, for vitamin D, which was measured by 25-hydroxyvitamin D, there was again a 90% of patients who were labeled as at least having marginal vitamin D deficiency. Specifically, again, 59% of these patients had a severe vitamin D deficiency, and at these levels, they can experience altered bone metabolism and altered immune function. Again, these graphs on the right represented a similar rep, um, relationship between vitamin D and child Pew and MELD score. As the child Pew or MELD score increased, the vitamin D levels both decreased. Overall, the authors noted that there was a stronger relationship between these fat-soluble vitamins and child Pew score in particular, and they hypothesized that this may be due to the um, child Pew score, including serum albumin, which is a synthetic predictor for liver function as well. Next, a few years later, Venue and colleagues conducted a similar study. However, they looked at cirrhosis in particular. So this was a retrospective review of patients with cirrhosis, again, awaiting liver transplantation. This involved 63 cirrhotic patients, and the most common etologies included alcoholic cirrhosis, and hepatitis C-related cirrhosis. In order to assess their disease severity, the MELD score and child Pew class was also calculated for each patient. The endpoints for this study in particular were to assess the prevalence of fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies and to elucidate the predictive factors for such deficiencies. So if we first look at the graph on the right, we can see that vitamin D or vitamin A deficiency had a stepwise relationship with child Pew score, because as child Pew score increased, the vitamin A deficiency also increased. As for vitamin D, this relationship was not quite as strong. However, a high prevalence of deficiency still existed. Overall, in our vitamin A deficiency, this was 69.8% of the cirrhotic patients. And for vitamin D deficiency, this was for 80.9% of the cirrhotic patients. Overall, we see that there is a strong relationship between fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies and our liver severity. So that brings me to our second poll question for today. We have a 62-year-old female with alcoholic liver cirrhosis. Her child Pew class is B, and her MELD score is 29. She is admitted for fluid overload. What trend may we observe if this patient's micronutrient deficiencies are not addressed? So it looks like the only answer we've gotten, 100%, is vitamin D deficiency will likely worsen if the patient progresses to child PUC. And I have 100% agree with this answer because as we saw from the studies, as the liver severity increased, 
so did the vitamin deficiencies. Therefore, A through C, normalizing the deficiency or improvement would not be seen with these increases in MELD score or child pew. Within the um, micronutrients that are key and are often highlighted throughout literature, vitamin A is one of the most prevalent throughout the primary literature for deficiencies in cirrhotic patients. Vitamin A plays a number of significant roles throughout the body, including immune and cellular function, a large role in vision, and also reproduction. Our desired levels of vitamin A in the body are 20 to 60 micrograms per deciliter or 0.69 to 2.09 micromolars per liter. Here at Mayo Clinic, we measure vitamin A levels with micrograms per deciliter. Knowing the significant roles that vitamin A plays in the body, what impact does vitamin A deficiency have on complications associated with cirrhosis? We know that portal hypertension and cirrhosis are, very, or are related in literature. However, how does this relate to vitamin A deficiency? In order to answer this question, Sim Brunner and colleagues conducted a prospective study of cirrhotic patients undergoing hepatic vein catheterization in 234 cirrhotic patients. In this study, the hepatic venous pressure gradient, or HVPG, was measured in each patient, and a chart review was conducted for vitamin A levels. In order to be included in this study, patients had to have an HVPG greater than or equal to 6 milligrams or millimeters of mercury. They were excluded from this study if they had treatment with non-selective beta blockers within the last five days, if they had a diagnosis of non-serotic portal hypertension, hepatocellular carcinoma, or a history of TIPS or liver transplantation. And overall, the study aimed to answer the question, do levels of fat-soluble vitamins correlate with the severity of liver disease and portal hypertension? In this study, we saw that there was an overall vitamin A deficiency in 73% of the patients. If you look at this graph here on the right, vitamin A was stratified against child pew stage. And as you can see, as the child pew stage increased, so did the vitamin A deficiency, as the vitamin A levels were lower in these patients. The mean HVPG, or hepatic venous pressure gradient, was 18 millimeters of mercury in this patient population. And it's important to note that a diagnosis of portal hypertension requires this pressure to be greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury. So the average here, or mean, was um, considered to be portal hypertension. Therefore, 202 or 86 percent of our patients were defined as having portal hypertension in this study. Again, vitamin A was stratified, but again, this time against HVPG. And as you can see, as the HVPG increased, so did the vitamin A deficiency again. Therefore, it is reasonable to hypothesize that with the progression of fibrosis, hepatic stellite cells lose the ability to store vitamin A, and this can lead to a progressive vitamin A deficiency. Next, we have a study by Clement and colleagues, and they looked at a different complication. Instead of portal hypertension, this was focused on hepatocellular carcinoma. They conducted a prospective study of patients with child pew class A liver cirrhosis in 226 patients. This involved 70 cirrhotic patients, 
16 patients with the diagnosis of hepatocellular carcinoma at baseline, and 140 healthy subjects. These patients were followed for seven years, and every six months, they were checked with abdominal ultrasonography and alpha-theta protein assays. Overall, they wanted to determine if a relationship existed between serum retinol levels and hepatocellular carcinoma development in cirrhotic patients. In this first table, we see that the retinol levels for patients with cirrhosis or a diagnosis of hepatocellular carcinoma both had a lower baseline retinol level compared to our healthy subjects. Additionally, those patients with hepatocellular carcinoma had an even lower retinol level compared to our cirrhotic patients without this diagnosis. If we look at the same levels, but seven years later, and determined which patients developed hepatocellular carcinoma, we see here that 14 patients developed HCC, and their retinol levels at baseline were significantly lower than our patients who did not develop hepatocellular carcinoma after the seven-year follow-up. Additionally, the relative risk for cirrhotic patients to develop hepatocellular carcinoma in this study if vitamin A deficiency was present was 4.5. Therefore, vitamin A deficiency may identify patients at high risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma, and supplementation may prove as an opportunity to reduce the risk of onset of this complication. Overall, this was just a handful of the studies available with vitamin A deficiency and complications in cirrhosis. However, within these two studies, we saw that vitamin A deficiency increases with cirrhosis severity, and it is associated with portal hypertension and hepatocellular carcinoma. This brings us to our second key micronutrient within cirrhotic patients and malnutrition. Vitamin D also has a number of important roles in the body. First, vitamin D promotes calcium absorption in the gut, which helps maintain adequate levels of calcium and phosphate in our serum, which can help prevent hypocalcemia and serve as a protective factor against osteopenia and osteomalacia. Additionally, it helps with the reduction of inflammation and modulation of cell growth. Our desired 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels are 30 to 50 nanograms per milliliter or 50 to 100 nanomoles per liter. Here at Mayo Clinic, we measure 25-hydroxy vitamin D in nanograms per milliliter. Knowing the significant roles that vitamin D plays in the body, what impact does vitamin D deficiency have on complications associated with cirrhosis? This brings us to our first study by Stokes and colleagues, which was a pro prospective survival study of patients with liver cirrhosis to determine all-cause mortality within 24 months. This involved 65 patients with cirrhosis, and all patients had 25-hydroxy vitamin D serum measurements completed, and deficiency was defined as less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. Additionally, survival status was documented at 6, 15, and 24 months for these patients. Inclusion criteria included histology-proven liver cirrhosis or characteristic history plus imaging and a diagnosis of portal hypertension. Exclusion included acute infection in the prior four weeks, HIV or suspected hepatocellular carcinoma, 
episodes of bleeding in the prior 30 days, or severe cardiopulmonary disease or renal failure. Overall, this study aimed to answer, is vitamin D deficiency associated with survival in patients with cirrhosis? Within this study, they found that 86% of the patients had vitamin D deficiency overall. Additionally, below detection level was defined as less than four nanograms per milliliter, and 23% of patients fit this below detection limit. If we look at the graph here on the right, the authors conducted a Kaplan-Meier analysis to look at survival in relationship to vitamin D levels. On the bottom of the graph, it is stratified by both vitamin D levels greater than six nanograms per milliliter or less than or equal to six nanograms per milliliter. And this level was determined to be the serum vitamin D cutoff level predictive of patient mortality by ROC area under the curve analysis. First, if we look at the levels that are greater than six nanograms per milliliter, 42 patients fit this level at baseline, and 25 patients survived at the end of 24 months. However, in comparison, for vitamin D levels less than six nanograms per milliliter, 23 patients were at baseline, and only six patients survived after 24 months with a level this low. Additionally, this graph censors for the transplanted patients and includes them as well. Um, there were four transplanted patients in this study, and both, if we censor for or remove them, in, um, exclude them, both relationships were statistically significant with our vitamin D levels. Therefore, a vitamin D level less than or equal to six nanograms per milliliter was predictive of survival for patients with cirrhosis. And further, it had a positive predictive value of about 50% mortality within 24 months in this study. Additionally, I would like to discuss this um, study that focuses on supplementation in particular. You may have noticed that many of the studies actually focus on complications, but not on supplementation of these fat-soluble vitamins. So this study focused on vitamin D supplementation in cirrhosis, and they conducted a prospective study of patients with alcoholic liver cirrhosis. This involved 70 patients, and they aimed to establish a relationship between vitamin D levels and child Pew score and to evaluate the effects of oral vitamin D supplementation in these patients. 25-hydroxy vitamin D serum levels were measured for each patient, and deficiency was defined as less than 50 nanomoles per liter. Additionally, each patient received 1,000 international units per day of cholecalciferol for 12 months. And I would like to note that this is a very small dose of vitamin D supplementation. However, it is appreciated that the authors looked at vitamin D supplementation in cirrhotic patients. First, within this study, an overall baseline vitamin D deficiency was found to be 58%. And after 12 months of supplementation, this decreased to only 26% of patients. If we look at the graph here on the left, vitamin D levels were stratified by child Pew score. Additionally, I will add these black stars that represent statistically significant increases in vitamin D levels from baseline. So if we first look at child Pew class A, we see that there was a statistically significant increase in vitamin D levels at three months and six months. 
For child pew class B, this was also present at three months and six months. And for child pew class C, or our most severe liver cirrhosis, there were statistically significant increases in vitamin D across three, six, and 12 months. The authors also looked at how the child pew scoring changed among this patient group. And as you can see, um, on the left, we have the baseline child pew score and how many patients were in each of these groups. And on the right, we have at 12 months. So in particular, of the class B patients at baseline, 11 of these patients changed to a child pew score of A. Within child pew class C, seven patients moved to A and four patients moved to B. And this was statistically significant. Overall, vitamin D supplementation for at least six months was optimal for patients with advanced liver cirrhosis. And you may have noticed on the last graph, there was a little bit of a dip after six months. And the authors discussed that this was likely due to compliance with vitamin D supplementation. And this just warrants why monitoring is so important to encourage our patients to adequately supplement their deficiencies and to make sure that we are appropriately providing the correct dose for our patients. Similar to vitamin A, this was again just a handful of the studies available for vitamin D deficiency and cirrhotic patients. But throughout these two studies, we saw that vitamin D deficiency is a predictor of survival and supplementation does improve child pew scoring. And that brings us to our last micronutrient for today, zinc, one of the important trace elements throughout the body. Zinc has several functional roles within the body, including helping with the catalytic activity of over 100 enzymes. Additionally, with protein and DNA synthesis and with wound healing. The desired zinc levels are 0.66 to 1.10 micrograms per milliliter, and these are the units that we use with our zinc measurements here at Mayo as well. Knowing the important role of zinc in the body, what impact does zinc deficiency have on complications associated with cirrhosis? Zinc deficiency in cirrhosis was investigated by Syngopta and colleagues through a retrospective study of patients with cirrhosis diagnoses and a serum zinc level that was previously drawn. This was in 163 cirrhotic patients, and for each of the patients, a chart review was conducted to determine their demographics and lab data, and then the authors calculated a child pew and MELD score for each of these patients. The aims of this study were to determine prevalence of zinc deficiency in stages of cirrhosis and to correlate zinc levels with complications of cirrhosis and clinical outcomes. Additionally, the authors aim to identify groups of cirrhotic patients who would potentially benefit from screening for zinc deficiency. Within this study, they found that 83% of patients were zinc deficient. And as you can see in this graph on the right, zinc was stratified by child pew score after each score was calculated for the cirrhotic patients. And as we move from child A to child um, C, classification, the zinc median level did decrease, and this was statistically significant. Overall, the authors also looked at complications associated with zinc deficiency and found that ascites, diuretic use, encephalopathy, lactulose use, and infection were all statistically related to zinc deficiency.
The study also looked at transplant-free survival within these patients. And they found that in the zinc-deficient group, at one year, 77% of patients had transplant-free survival. And at three years, this was 51%. Now, in comparison to our patients who were not Statist or were not um, deemed to be deficient in zinc, these levels were much higher. At one year, it was a 96% transplant-free survival, and at three years, 74% transplant-free survival. Overall, they could not say that zinc deficiency caused a decrease in transplant-free survival. However, zinc deficiency is a marker of advanced liver disease. Additionally, we have another study that looked at supplementation in cirrhotic patients, and this time for zinc supplementation. This was a retrospective study of patients with chronic liver disease, and of the 267 patients in this study, 44% had a diagnosis of cirrhosis. Overall, this study aimed to investigate liver function and risk of death, liver failure, and development of hepatocellular carcinoma after zinc administration for more than three years. They broke down the groups into zinc supplementation and no zinc treatment. Within the zinc supplementation group, the dose ranged from about 60 to 120 milligrams per day, and this was not a fixed um, supplementation dose, but rather was deemed to be determined by the prescribing physician. Further, the authors broke down this supplementation group into four additional groups based on the zinc level after six months of zinc supplementation. Finally, the authors evaluated liver function and the number of events every six months during follow-up in this study. Overall, the cirrhotic patients made up 52.6 of our zinc group and 21.1% of the no treatment group. The mean follow-up was 40 plus or minus 31.5 months and zinc supplementation was continued during this entire time period. They found that in the zinc group, levels were able to be increased to greater than 90 micrograms per deciliter and this level was maintained for four years. In comparison, in the no treatment group, these zinc levels remained low. And this is re represented in this graph here on the left. As you can see, the blue line with no treatment, um, the zinc levels pretty much plateaued below 60. In comparison with the zinc group, there was a statistically significant increase in zinc levels compared to baseline. Additionally, the authors looked at liver function based on obtaining the T-bili levels, the albumin levels, and prothrombin activity. And within the zinc group, they found that there was no change in liver function. However, in the no-zinc group, they found a deterioration in liver function. In order to look at the cumulative incident rates, we can look at the graph here in comparison to no treatment and zinc, and we see that zinc had a 9.5% incident rate of death, development of hepatocellular carcinoma, or appearance of liver failure, in comparison to 24.9% of the patients in the no treatment group. If we look at hepatocellular carcinoma in particular here on the right, 
we see that the zinc group developed hepatocellular carcinoma in 7.6% of patients compared to 19.2% of patients in the no zinc group at three years. And both of these relationships were found to be statistically significant. As I mentioned, these four groups were further defined from the zinc supplementation group. And they wanted to look at these levels in comparison to the cumulative rate, as I mentioned before, was the accumulative incidence of death, development of hepatocellular carcinoma, and the appearance of liver failure. And as you can see here, there is a clear pattern of a decrease in prevalence of these cumulative incidence rates at three years as the zinc level increased. And again, these were levels at six months post-zinc supplementation. Again, we can look at the hepatocellular carcinoma rates in particular, and the same relationship exists. As the zinc level increased, the HCC rates decreased, and both of these were statistically significant as well. Therefore, the authors concluded that serum zinc levels greater than 70 micrograms per deciliter had better clinical outcomes, and they recommended that patients should take at least 90 milligrams of zinc per day. Similarly to vitamin A and vitamin D, this was again just a handful of the primary literature available for zinc deficiency. However, we saw that zinc deficiency increases with um, cirrhosis severity and supplementation improves liver function. And this brings us to our third assessment question. Our same patient, a 62-year-old female with alcoholic liver cirrhosis, is admitted for volume overload. If micronutrient deficiencies are found and left untreated, what cirrhotic complications may be more likely to present in the future based on the presented evidence today? All right, so it looks like we have a competition between A and C. And I would actually say A, based on the presented material. We saw that portal hypertension, this was the first study we discussed, was associated with vitamin D deficiency. We did not discuss cirrhotic cardiomyopathy. And for C, hepatocellular carcinoma was actually more associated with zinc deficiency in comparison to vitamin D deficiency. And finally, variceal bleeding is definitely a complication associated with cirrhosis. However, zinc deficiency is not related to variceal bleeding throughout the primary literature. And this brings us to our last objective for my presentation. First, I would like to go over the Mayo Clinic nutrition guidelines for these micronutrients. Next, we will compare the Mayo Clinic guidelines to national or international guidelines because our ASPEN or American Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition lacks a clear um, guideline for cirrhotic patients with micronutrient supplementation. Therefore, we will focus on the European Society guidelines. And finally, I will provide general recommendations for monitoring micronutrients. First, with, for um, the Mayo Clinic guideline, this can be found on our policy library. And I have the title here at the bottom of the slide, but it is labeled the Hepatobiliary Guideline for Arizona, Florida, and Rochester. Within this guideline for vitamin A in particular, we recommend starting to screen for deficiency when the MELD score is greater than five in cholestatic patients. And this was from a Mayo Clinic division of gastroenterology and hepatology study in patients with primary biliary cirrhosis. 
In this study, MELD score was found to be a predictive value, predictive test of vitamin A deficiency based on ROC curves, and the best threshold was five. When obtaining vitamin A levels, if the level is less than 10 micrograms per deciliter, we recommend loading 50,000 international units and giving 10,000 international per units per day for two months and then rechecking the level. With this recheck, if the level is still less than 10, it is recommended to give 10,000 international units three times a week for three months and then to recheck the level. And finally, if the level is normal, a multivitamin is recommended. However, it's very important to note that many multivitamins contain beta-carotene instead of just vitamin A, and patients with liver disease can have difficulty converting beta-carotene to vitamin A in the body. And you may wonder from looking at this table what we do with our patients that are below our normal threshold of 20, but greater than 10 micrograms per deciliter. And with these patients, our Mayo Clinic dietitians recommend starting at the middle box here at 10,000 international units three times per day and following up with another rechecked level. As for vitamin D within the Mayo Clinic guidelines, it is recommended to check 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels at least annually with a goal of greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter. And it is recommended to use vitamin D3 exclusively because these patients have a difficulty in converting vitamin D2 to vitamin D3. If the level is less than six nanograms per milliliter, we recommend starting with 50,000 international units for seven days, then weekly for eight weeks, and to recheck in two months. If our level is between six to 30 nanograms per milliliter, or the patient has osteopenia, we would recommend giving 50,000 international units per week times eight weeks and rechecking in two months. And finally, if the level is greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter, it is recommended to give 2,000 international units per day and to recheck in six months. And finally, for zinc, it is recommended to supplement zinc sulfate with 220 milligrams one to three times per day. Within majority of the studies that this um, guideline references, they used about 600 milligrams. However, it is known that it, is, it can be difficult to tolerate zinc and then compliance can be an issue. Therefore, we typically start with just once daily and can increase based on the patient's tolerance. The guidelines also recommend these three statements by saying that zinc deficiency impairs ammonia reduction pathways and knowing that it can be beneficial in hepatic, hepatic, hepatic encephalopathy as well. Repletion of zinc may also help improve vitamin carrier proteins, improve taste and smell perceptions, and improve the um, inflammatory process within the body. And finally, adequate zinc may reduce hepatocellular carcinoma, which we also saw in the study um, discussed today. Finally, looking at ESPEN guidelines in comparison to our Mayo guidelines, they have a flowchart for liver cirrhosis in particular. And if we follow this flowchart to micronutrients, it reads, in cirrhotic patients, micronutrients should be administered to treat confirmed or clinically suspected deficiency. And looking through the rest of the text or the explanation for this flowchart in particular, there's no definition of what to use for the doses, how often to monitor. So here we see that the Mayo guidelines are actually much more specific and used primary literature to come to these conclusions. And this brings us to our last question. 
Um, for time's sake, we'll go a little bit faster with this one. Um, the same patient, but now the gastroenterology service asks for your recommendation on micronutrient deficiency management. Which of the following would you recommend for monitoring frequency? And I'll bring the question up here in a second, but here are your patient lab values. And you can see that compared to the normal values, all deficiencies exist from vitamin A, D, and zinc. So how often would you like to monitor them? All right, and I would agree with the majority here. Two months is ideal. This may not be possible in all patients, but the sooner the better to make sure that we are adequately supplementing our patients, especially if this is the first time we are starting supplementation. And overall, I would like to leave you with some summary strategies for micronutrient management. First, it's important to assess severity of liver disease using the child pew or MELD score. As we saw, liver severity increases, our malnutrition also increases. Second, it's important to obtain micronutrient levels to assess baseline deficiencies in our patients. And we should follow the Mayo Clinic guideline for supplementation dosing and stay up to date with the primary literature as more evidence evolves for micronutrient deficiencies in cirrhotic patients. It's also important to monitor our micronutrient levels to ensure appropriate supplementation. I didn't have time today to go through the possibility of toxicities, but it's a fine balance of making sure that we are in the therapeutic range for each of these micronutrients. And finally, it's a great opportunity for pharmacists to work with the multidisciplinary care team, including our physicians and dietitians, to make sure that our patients are appropriately supplemented when micronutrient deficiencies exist. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.